How are you guys? You guys good? I'm good. I'm just glad I can walk today without a cane. How amazing is that? I left it in my car, so that's pretty cool. I brought it just in case. I don't have that much faith. Come on. Um, I'm kidding, of course. I'm very, very grateful for the way God sustains me and the way that he sustains us all. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Lorenzo. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm not the primary teaching pastor. Um, I guess, though, I probably have been for a season. (laughs) Um, But it is still my incredible privilege to be here with you and to look into God's word with you this morning. Uh, As the passage that Sam read, that's a doozy of a passage, right? Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, when it talks about spit, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. I was thinking, you know, what, what am I going to, what title am I going to give this sermon? And maybe I'll just call it, Bleh! but then I didn't know how to spell that, so the this, this sermon is still untitled, so if you have any suggestions, you can send me an email. Um, but anyway, have you guys ever received one of those texts, and just, it's completely random, and it just says something like, hey, can we talk? Or, hey, we need to talk, or something like that. Has anyone ever received a text like that? Whether you have or whether you haven't, what, what typically goes through your mind in those moments? Any thoughts? Anybody? Game over? Game over. <laughs> yeah, d- definitely some version of oh crap or something like that, right? Yeah, it's usually not a very good thing. At a previous church I was at, um, I led a staff of 35 people. And uh, with a staff of 35, I thought, okay, well, you know, I want to stay connected to the staff. I want to figure out what's going on, and I want to make sure I'm relationally connected. And, um, you know, I'm not hiding in my office and that sort of thing. So very often I would step out of my office, and I'd make the rounds, and I'd go hang out, and I'd go talk to the staff and check in on them and see how they're doing, chit-chat, and just get caught up in those sorts of things. And I would do that on a fairly regular basis. And because I did that on such a regular basis, um, I discovered an interesting thing would happen whenever I called someone into my office. It's like, why do you want me to come to your office? (laughs) And so I guess there would be that, oh, like Lorenzo always walks around and comes and says hi and all that stuff, but now he's calling me into his office. And so it would strike fear in the hearts of our staff and people would assume... You know, oh, I did something wrong, or I'm in trouble, or something like that. But uh, it was very rarely that. But what I learned is that my office apparently is a scary place, and what I needed to do was change up my rhythms so that the staff could know that my office was actually a safe place. And so I started having more meetings in my office and calling people in and that sort of a thing. But that's kind of what we see happening here in this passage, except it's not just a perception thing where... Uh, There was no reason to fear. But to the church in Laodicea, Jesus is literally saying to them, hey, we need to talk. There's problems. We need to have a conversation. And there was a lot going on there. There's a problem that needed to be addressed, and he was going to address it. And and that's exactly what he does. And and so we're going to be able to get to see how this all plays out. And like to... Look at this passage in four different sections. First, we see the confrontation. Then we see the delusion. 
then we see the solution, and then we will take a look at the invitation. But first, I want to give us some context for what's going on here. This is part of the book of Revelation. We know that by its name, Revelation. But in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we see the opening phrase which speaks of and says the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is really authored by Jesus Christ. And, and throughout uh, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is addressing seven different churches. He's addressing seven different churches, one of those churches being the church in Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was a city in what is now modern-day Turkey. It was known for its wealth. It was a very rich city. It was known for its thriving textile industry, and it was also famous for its medical school and its medical accomplishments. And what's notable about this church here, as Jesus himself addresses this church, is that it is the only church of the seven where Jesus doesn't have anything good to say at all. Nothing. In all of the churches, even when he has, in some cases, some hard words to say, there's always something good about them that he commends them for. Not so the church in Laodicea. Nothing good to say. And in fact, he gives them a very harsh rebuke. So let's take a look at this first section, the confrontation, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 15. He says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold, so, that because, you, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Whoa, heavy stuff. What an incredible statement. You're going to spit us out of your mouth? Really? He's like, yeah. And if you're a parent, you might know what it's like when your kid is not a fan of your dinner selection, right? And, and that was what came to my mind as I was reading this passage. My youngest still sometimes does this. We'll make dinner or lunch or whatever it might be, and and... If we can coax her, you know, kids can be so picky eaters and finicky, and if we can coax her to try it and take a bite or whatever, if, she, if it gets into her, if we successfully get it into her mouth and she chooses and decides, oh, I'm not down with this, rather than spitting it out, she'll just do this thing where she kind of just drops her jaw <laughs> and allows the food to come out. But that's not even what's happening in this passage. What's happening is, is in this passage is, is a much more aggressive action. Not just allowing the food to fall out like my daughter. He's saying, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, this is a really interesting passage because it's, this is a very, and even this part right here is, is a commonly misunderstood and misinterpreted passage. Now, I don't want to... You know, sometimes pastors say statements like that. It's like, oh, great, yeah, you're the know-it-all. You've figured out the secret of the passage. I don't mean that arrogantly, but I think as we look at the text and the context here, I think we'll see how this plays out and about how um, we, can, we have the Christian subculture often has drawn uh, erroneous conclusions and, misinterpreta and interpretations about this verse. But this verse, when it talks about 
um, being hot and cold and lukewarm and all of that, it's often assumed that it's speaking about the spiritual temperature of the church. And the assumption being that hot is indicative of something good, where there's, there's a fervency, there's a passion, there's an enthusiasm for God. And somewhere along the line, we even invented this theology uh, of being on fire for God. Anyone ever heard of that phrase before? Probably the only time that anyone would refer to being on fire as a desirable state. That's how weird the church is, I guess. But in contrast to, um, uh, in contrast to, to hot being good and desirable, in contrast, according to this interpretive theory, to be cold would, have been, would be a state of unbelief where one has rejected God, and then to be lukewarm, of course, is to be spiritually indifferent, sort of in between both hot and cold. But I would suggest to you that that's a misinterpretation of the passage. Notice what he says here in verse 15. You are, and read it carefully with me, you are neither hot, sorry, yeah, I just said read it carefully, right? And here I am, like, I never learned to read. Um, You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. His harshest rebuke here, notice, his harshest rebuke here is not for those that are cold. His harshest rebuke is for those that are lukewarm. He actually says, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're neither of those, and because you're lukewarm, we have a problem. And while this might seem like a very random illustration, the people of Laodicea would have understood this reference very well. See, there was something about the city itself that is the clue to understanding this rebuke. Laodicea did not have a good water source of its own, but was dependent upon the neighboring cities uh, to provide water for them via an aqueduct system. There was Hierapolis, which was about six miles to the north. It was famous for its soothing hot springs. And there was Colossae, about 11 miles to the southeast, which which had uh, refreshing, cool, cold water coming from the mountains. But unfortunately, by the time the water from either of these cities made it to Laodicea through these aqueducts, it had lost the qualities that had made it remarkable. The hot water was no longer hot, and the cold water was no longer cold. And for obvious reasons, both hot and cold water are good and useful, right? When you take a shower, it's a hot shower. <laughs> when, you need, when it's on a hot day, you want a, a cold glass of water. Even in a good example is uh, the way we drink our coffee, right? You can have hot coffee and really enjoy that. Or you can have iced coffee, cold coffee, and really enjoy that. But take either one of those selections, hot coffee or iced coffee, and you set it out on the counter for four hours and take a sip, I think it's not something that you'll probably take a second sip of. It becomes disgusting. Okay. Cool story, bro, with all this water and stuff. But what about it? What about it? Here's what's happening. 
in using this reference that, Jesus, that these, the, the Laodiceans would understand, Jesus is bringing evidence against them. In verse 15, he says, I know your works. That's how he starts this off. He says, I know your works. And then this is what you're like. And he uses this illustration of the hot water and the cold water, and, but you're lukewarm. He draws that distinction. Their discipleship. And their commitment to Jesus, like the water that they receive from Colossae and like the water they receive from Hierapolis, was unremarkable. Their commitment to Jesus was just unremarkable. It was, there was nothing about it. It wasn't good. As a church, their, their ministry efforts were ineffective. They weren't good for anything. And it confronts the barren nature of their works, of their deeds. And Jesus is saying, I can't deal with that. Jesus frequently equates deeds with a person's true spiritual state. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And so Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea, I know your works, and here's my problem. And the text goes on to reveal more about what was going on with them. And so if that's the confrontation, here we see their delusion. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is what you call a general lack of self-awareness. They didn't understand their, their, their own state. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. You think you're this, but you're not. You're this. You think you're rich. You think you've prospered on your own, that you don't need anything. And he's like, no, you're, de- you're delusional. You've got this all wrong. You're wretched. You're pitiful. You're poor. You're blind and naked. And we already talked about how Laodicea was a wealthy city and they had this uh, this sense of self-sufficiency. And we see it, how they're portrayed here. Like, we're good, we're in need of nothing. But we see their sense of uh, self-sufficiently put on display after an earthquake that devastated the area in in, um, 60 AD. First century Roman historian Tacitus He wrote about them and and how they handled this devastating earthquake and the whole area, really. He says, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us, the Romans. That's how self-sufficient they were. Like, I don't need anything. We're good. Can you imagine that? Devastating earthquake. Like, no, we don't need any official aid from the government. It kind of reminds me of when um, Hurricane Katrina hit, the Cat 5 hurricane back in um, 2005 that hit New Orleans. And uh, there were thousands of people that sought shelter in the convention center in New Orleans and in uh, the Superdome there. Some, they, it was such chaos, no one really knows how many people were seeking shelter there because there was no check-in system, there was no anything. And that was part of why it was such a dangerous situation. 
And some estimate that there was as many as 30,000 people seeking shelter in, this, in the, in the uh, uh, Superdome and in the uh, convention center. But it was a, a, a desperate situation. There was no food, there was no water, there was no prescription medication, there was no first aid, um, there was little, if any, law enforcement presence. It was a mess. And I remember seeing it on the news because news crews had made their way in. I remember seeing it, it's like, I can't believe this is happening. It was the kind of thing that you'd see happening in another country, maybe, where they don't have proper, proper infrastructure in place or whatever. It's like, I can't believe this is actually happening in the United States. And um, the church I was at at the time, we actually had a team in New Orleans when, when Katrina hit. But then, Katrina, then New Orleans was under like 12 feet of water or whatever, so the team was ineffective and was locked down. And um, finally, aid reaches New Orleans, and they were able to bring in hundreds of buses where they were able to bring in the needed supplies and all that, and they bust people to Houston to stay in the Astrodome and in the convention center there as well in Houston. And I remember watching the news that night, and I knew our team was in New Orleans, unable to do anything, but I thought, forget New Orleans. The people are going to Houston. And so I made some phone calls. The next thing I know, I was on a plane the next day to go to Houston. And I was there trying to help out and come alongside the efforts of other charities and other churches and uh, government agencies that were seeking to help. And uh, it was a horrible situation. But I can't, I mean, and the people, the people were so grateful and so thankful for the aid that they were receiving. They're like, you know, it wasn't, there was no pride issues. Like, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Like, they understood how desperate their situation was, and they gladly received aid. And I remember even, like, side note here, totally side note. I remember, like, okay, man, like, how am I going to really, like, talk to these people? Like, they're going to be mad at God, and, and they're going to be angry, and, and all these things. And you know what I found? The predominant uh, attitude of the people was just one of gratefulness. They were just so grateful to be alive and for the help that they were receiving. But Laodicea, their city devastated. They're like, no, we're good. We don't need any help at all. We don't need any assistance. We got this. We can take care of ourselves. It actually reminds me of that. I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was a Pepsi Max commercial, Super Bowl commercial from a few years back, and we, I wanted to see if we could play it for your viewing pleasure today, but I guess there's like copyright issues and stuff like that, and there's like laws we got to follow, so. Um, but I'll describe it for you, and you, maybe you'll remember it, but the commercial depicts a series of mishaps where, uh, where there's, in one scene, there's, there's a guy who swings a golf club and hits his buddy in the face <laughs> as he swings the golf club, and then there's another scene where um, a guy's working on a light and his buddy you know, turns on the power, he gets flung across the yard into the side of a horse trailer. And um, in both of these cases, the men depicted just pop up and say, I'm good, <laughs> I'm good. But the men in the commercial were not good. They were in need of medical attention. And the Laodiceans, they're saying, we're good. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. You're delusional. You need my help. So he confronts this delusion. He confronts their prideful sense of self-sufficiency and exposes their true state. They think they have everything they need. And he's like, not the case. 
Your city is a banking center, but you're not rich. You're poor. You're proud of your medical school and the accomplishments you've made in medicine, but you're blind. You have a, tech, a thriving textile industry, yet you remain unclothed and naked. They were relying on their own resources instead of Jesus. Now, let's be honest. We do this all the time, don't we? We do this all the time. We look at what we have or even what we hope to have as the means to make it through life, to thrive in life, or to find significance or meaning in life. And we want to arrive at a certain place in life so that we can be okay. And most of the time, our thoughts of what it will take to make us feel okay are usually we're at the center of that story. And if I can be just be, if I could just be this successful, if I can get this job, this promotion, this pay raise, this part, if I can make this much money, then everything will be okay. We trust in our own resources all the time. When something goes wrong in our life, we're like, okay, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? That's our response. As Christians, our first response should be, let's go to the Lord in prayer. But even as Christians, even as the church, we fall back where we're like, we, we start to rely on ourselves. What are the resources that I have with, within my own disposal that I can address the problems and the hardships and the challenges that I'm facing? Right? We do that all the time. And it's easy to point a finger at the Laodiceans and say, you guys are idiots. No, but we're the idiots. We're the Laodiceans. We do this too. But only Jesus has what we are truly seeking. And he presents himself as the solution. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To the church in Laodicea where there was so much wealth, he says, I can make you rich in the truest sense. To those that took pride in the textile industry, he says, I can clothe you in something better than you've ever been able to produce yourselves. And to those that were known for the contributions in medicine, he says, I can actually heal your blindness. Jesus is the only source for what we need the most. Jesus is the only source for what we need the most. The Laodiceans enjoyed their material wealth, but they were oblivious to their own spiritual poverty. They trusted in what they had around them. They trusted in their abilities. They trusted in, in, in the things that they had gathered around them. And so in that sense, they were materially wealthy, but spiritually they were dead, living in spiritual poverty. But here, here's the thing, and this is where we still see ourselves in the, Laodiceans, in the Laodiceans. 
Spiritual bankruptcy is the starting point for everybody. Spiritual bankruptcy is the starting point for everybody. And we have to come face to face with that reality that we need Jesus. And outside of Jesus, no argument can be made. No position can truly be honestly taken that says, I'm good without Jesus. And so we see here the invitation. Verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And he calls them to repent, which is the only way to become spiritually rich. And if he's, and here's the key, and if he's calling them and if he's inviting them to repent, what does that say about his thoughts about them? If he's calling them to repent, that means he hasn't given up on them. He's saying there's still a chance. Yeah, but what about the whole spitting out of your mouth thing? And like, you know, what, what's that all about? Here's how we should understand that. Notice that it's his love for them that prompts his rebuke of them. It's his love for them that prompts his rebuke of them. Sometimes a loving encounter with Jesus comes in the form of a rebuke. We don't want to believe that. We don't want to accept that. And we want to choose to believe that God's a big meanie. But sometimes his love is demonstrated to us and expressed to us in the form of, rebu of rebuke, of discipline, of correction. But even in that, there's a distinction made between discipline and punishment. Discipline is corrective. It's not the final answer. It's not the final proclamation. Again, and ever since I became a parent, my whole world is, <laughs> that's the way I view the world. So almost every illustration I ever get or give is about my kids. But there's times where our kids have gotten in trouble for various things, and especially with my oldest, as she's forming these thought process, these thought processes. There's been times where she said, "Daddy, you're mean," <laughs> because she doesn't like the rebuke, she doesn't like the discipline, she doesn't like the correction. And what a child doesn't yet understand is that sometimes that correction and that rebuke comes because I love her so much. And I, I love her too much to allow her to live however she wants. And that's what's going on here. Jesus does not want them to continue onto the, onto the destructive path that they're on. They may or may not realize it, but this is for their good. And they need to know what's up. And, and, and it's loving to let them know what is coming if they don't change course. And Jesus is saying, here's the course you're on. We need to think hard about this. Especially as it relates to the relationship between love and correction. If our view of love cannot involve rebuke, then we have the wrong view of love. 
If our view of love cannot involve rebuke, we have the wrong view of love. And it's clear that this rebuke in this passage is intended for their discipline, not punishment. It's not a proclamation of their finished state. It's a confrontation regarding their current state. And it doesn't have to be this way. This is something that they can obviously do something about by, by repenting and turning from their ways. And Jesus is saying, I love you, therefore I discipline you and I correct you and I rebuke you, but I call you to repent because I'm not done with you and I want to receive you in relationship. He loves them. He wants to be in a relationship with them. And what's interesting when we look at this, when we, when we think about how of all that he says to the seven churches, this is the only one he doesn't say something good about, right? But despite that, he has not given up on them. He does not write them off. But we're like that, right? Someone lets us down, or don't, they, they don't live up to our expectations, and we're over it. We're done. Forget them. Jesus is like, nope. This is a problem, but I, I, there's still time. I want you to turn to me. You have the opportunity to turn and repent, and that's what he's calling the Laodiceans to do. Jesus is patient with us like he was patient with them. And he gives us opportunity after opportunity to turn to him and repent. And the invitation continues. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? This is a very familiar passage. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. So you might say Jesus is the one who knocks, but not in a breaking bad sense. Not in a breaking bad kind of way. If you understand, and he's there knocking. And if you don't understand the the Breaking bad reference, who cares? It's not the point. The point is he's standing there knocking. If he's standing there knocking, what is he doing? It's an invitation. And it's a patient invitation. And he's standing there knocking, inviting them to invite him in. And notice, he doesn't kick down the door screaming, I'm coming in whether you like it or not. He stands there and he knocks and he's inviting them as he invites us to invite him in. I don't know about you, but I love that picture of Jesus. And I don't know if I'd want to serve a God who was forceful and imposed himself on me. And Jesus desires meaningful relationship with us. And it's really the difference between uh, when you compare it to something like marriage. Someone who willingly enters into a relationship with another and enters into that covenant relationship and pledges their life to the other person. And it would be not meaningful at all if both couldn't willingly enter into that relationship. Jesus doesn't impose himself on us. But he calls us to have a relationship with him but he's standing at the door knocking. It reminds me of my daughter, my, my youngest. Every time she hears someone at the door or 
or it's maybe the UPS guy ringing the doorbell. She gets so excited, and she goes running across the room and makes a beeline for the door. And she opens the door, and she says, come in. <laughs> just like that. She's so excited. It's not just, it's not just come in. It's a come in. She's so enthusiastically welcoming the UPS guy into my home. <laughs> and then if he's lucky, sometimes she'll even follow that up with happy Halloween. And then she'll pretend to give him candy. Sometimes things really stick in kids' brains. <laughs> Apparently that's still stuck in her brain from last October. <laughs> but we're like, no, Amelia, I'm sure he probably has lots of other smiley face boxes to deliver to other homes. But here's the point. Jesus is waiting for the Laodiceans to open the door and welcome him like my daughter welcomes the UPS guy. You know, that's part of my own story. Some of you know my story. Some of you don't. But I was in a desperate situation in my early 20s. And uh, I, I, there was a moment where I, I started praying. And I remember while I'm praying, thinking, why am I praying? And that I am praying, why would God listen to me? I can't remember the last time I prayed. I've not done anything to deserve him. Uh, to, to hear me at all or to, I don't deserve any kind of response at all. But what I discovered, and this was this mind-blowing moment, what I discovered is that he was right there waiting for me to invite him in. I had distanced myself from him. I had run from him. And he wasn't like, fine, I agree with you. I'm out of here. Nope. He was, he was right there the whole time. And all I had to do was turn to him. And he's like, all right, let's do this. That's what Jesus is like. He had not given up on me, and he has not given up on them. And if you find yourself in that place, I want you to know he's not given up on you. And one of the most interesting things to remember about this passage is that he's not talking about, and he's not talking to those that have rejected him harshly or not put their faith in him. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to a church. Wow. Right? That should be sobering for us. That he's actually saying these words to a church the church is not made up of perfect people. Hang out with us long enough, you'll, we'll, we'll prove it to you. I promise to you, we will prove it. But that's okay. In the sense that it's not okay that we hurt one another or that we, are, we let people down or whatever, but here's the thing. Bi the Bible says that we are a family and that each of us here are brothers and sisters. We're spiritual siblings to one another. God is our heavenly father. Is your, anyone here have a perfect family? Nope. As tight as you are as a family, as close as you are as a family, as grateful as you might be for your parents or whatever, no one in your family is perfect and your family isn't perfect. That is not a metaphor that is used incorrectly in Scripture. 
when we are told in Scripture that we are part of God's family and that we are brothers and sisters to one another, Ephesians chapter 2 says we're members of the household of God, <laughs> the implication is the obvious, is that we're broken, messed up people, but we are family and we persevere through the brokenness and we persevere through the ways that we let one another down. So the church is not made up of perfect people. Maybe you're visiting and you're like, okay, fine. My buddy's been bugging me about you know, going to a church service with him. So, okay, fine, I'll go. But the second I find out that they're hypocrites or the second I find out that they are messed up people or the second I found out that they fall short of this standard that I think that they should have, I'm going to bounce. Like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, like, don't wait to figure it out. I mean, I'm telling you right now. The church is not made up of perfect people at all. We're not perfect people, but we're in relationship with the one who is. That's the difference. So it's not just those who don't know Jesus that need Jesus. The church does too. Trust me, I've been doing this, well, just the ministry stuff. Forget how long I've known Jesus, but even just the ministry stuff where I have the inside view of things. I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been doing this for 20 years. And the church can forget about Jesus. The church can be self-reliant. The church can get to the point where we don't recognize our need for Jesus. We've got our systems and, we're structu and our structures and we're good. Or we have our programs and we're fine. And we're getting ready for next Sunday. And we gather 52 times a year. And that's great. And we're doing our thing. And we resemble a relationship with Jesus. And we sort of, with our lips, say we're connected to Jesus. But there are times when a church can drift horribly away from Jesus. So this message, this rebuke, this confrontation, the delusion, the invitation... All of that is relevant to us. He's speaking to a church, and we as a church need to be mindful of this. Even, I'll tell you, it's not in my notes, so that means I'll probably go long, but whatever. You'll forgive me, right? <laughs> We're brothers and sisters. We forgive one another. I'll tell you, it even applies to our search for a teaching pastor, right? We can have this idea of, well, I'm looking for this, 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 and this, Right? And we can trust in our systems and our processes and, and all that kind of stuff. And we can create this profile that we think is like the ultimate. And we can think that is the solution. And I wouldn't even say, I mean, I guess I'm the one speaking, so you judge for yourself. I don't know. But I wouldn't say that we're suffering right now as a church. You know, we're not in a desperate situation where, oh, we got to find a teaching pastor fast. Maybe after the end of the sermon, you'll think that. I don't know. You can send me an email. <laughs> Send me an email about it. I don't know. But the point is this. We don't need a, a primary preaching pastor as much as we need Jesus. And we need to be reliant upon Jesus. And we need to recognize our need for Jesus. We can lose all this stuff 
and still have Jesus, and we're good. Believe me. We can have all this stuff and lose Jesus, and we're not good. We won't be good. Where are you at? Where are you at individually with this stuff? I'm not talking about the preaching pastor. I'm talking about you and Jesus. Where are you at with Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus? Have you ever recognized that you're a sinner? Have you ever recognized your need? Like Jesus is calling out the Laodicean church. He's like, you don't get it. You're in need. Like, no, I'm good. No, you're not. Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus? Do you recognize your need? Do you recognize your brokenness? How do you think we're doing as a church community as a whole? Are we dependent upon Jesus? Is our trust in our leadership? Is our trust in our systems and our programs and our ministries? Is our hope in the ministries we don't have that we want to develop? Well, that can be helpful, obviously. But we need Jesus. And my point is not to downplay staff and ministries or anything like that. My point is to draw a crystal clear picture of our need for Jesus. That is the point. We need Jesus. We need to recognize that only he can provide what we need the most. We need to recognize our sin and our brokenness. That's what this invitation is all about. Because our sin separates us from him. Well, why is that? Because it just ticks him off and he just doesn't like it? Well, yeah, but it's not just that. Here's the problem. Jesus is holy. He's completely intolerant of sin. So his state of holiness cannot mix with our state of brokenness. Those two don't go together. So what happened is Jesus came into our world to take on our brokenness. That's the only way that those two worlds meet. And we can accept what he did for us or we can be like the Laodiceans and say, no, we're good. We can even recognize our brokenness. We can even recognize our sin and say, okay, now I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do this and we try to get out of our brokenness. We try to get out of our sin and Jesus is like, you're relying on yourself. You're still missing the point. You're not relying on me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus comes into the picture and we have an opportunity to turn away from our sin and repent like Jesus calls the Laodicean church. We can turn from our sin and repent and put our faith in him because what he did for us was he died on the cross for our sins. And the significance of the cross itself is not significant in the sense that it doesn't matter how he died. But the point is he died for us, taking upon himself all of our brokenness and all of our sin. If you are a Christian here and you feel guilt and shame over the mistakes that you make and have made, Jesus takes that upon himself. If you're not a believer, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you think you'd like to, 
but you're like, man, I'm, I'm a screw up. You don't know what I've done. I've done some things. Jesus, here's the good news. Jesus died to take that upon himself. That's the point. Well, thank you for dying on the cross for me. That's nice and everything. But how, how does that make a difference in my life? How do I know that that will make any difference at all? He rose again on the third day. His resurrection proved that his death satisfied a holy God. That the sacrifice for sin had been made and had been accepted. His resurrection proves that what he accomplished was truly accomplished. And now what we can do as we place our faith in him and trust in the work that he did for us, we can now pursue God and be restored to his perfect design as he always intended it. That's the good news. That's the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about a genre of music. We're talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. Self-sufficiency says we don't need Jesus. And if we believe that lie, we'll find that we'll spend eternity separated from him. And Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea and to us, it doesn't need to be that way. It doesn't need to be that way. Let's pray.